We're back. The Whiskey Hue, a podcast from three brown startup enthusiasts that pull back the curtain on business, culture, and side pieces. <laughs> Not that tight. We're talking emerging media, cannabis, blockchain, startups, and so much more. Without the bullshit, and most importantly, over whiskey. America calls Clyde Black, Athul Brown, and Anthony somewhere in the confusing middle. With three brothers, various shades of brown, bringing you the latest in tech, business, and startups, mixed with a ton of sarcasm. Cue the music. You know, I, I don't have music today. Um, this guy. This guy. You know, I, a part of me, a part of me has to think that we got to change the intro up when we have a guest on, and and it's just, it's just not, it's just, it doesn't come off well when since someone Anthony's in a confusing middle. Um, it just does. I don't I don't try to, don't try to act sophisticated because company I'm, is here. I'm very, I'm, so ladies, I'm ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to the Whiskey Hue. We have company here, and Anthony's trying to act brand new. So we're gonna dive right into it. <laughs> we're not gonna spend any time. Uh, we're gonna dive in right into it. I want to let Abdul introduce our special guest. We're excited. We're honored, uh, and we have some gems that's gonna be dropped today. No pressure. Uh, <laughs> so jump into it, Abdul. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Anthony is confusing and he's in the middle. Oh, we're talking about Angela today, but, um, Anthony, so we, we're, we're going to drop some music in there. I'll clean it up and put it in. But every time we have a guest, he just, he just, he just drops the ball. He, you know, the mic goes out, <laughs> but no, we'll get it. We'll get it in. But Dr. Angela Jackson, you're going to learn a lot from our distinguished guest. So she leads new profits, future of work initiative, which seeks to close the career readiness gap for Americans from low income backgrounds. She initially began in the private sector, leading business development with the likes of Viacom and Nokia. During these roles, she discovered if multinational companies can deliver three things, products consistently with quality at scale, how could we deliver social interventions like education and health in a similar manner? So the answer to this question led her to launch Global Language Project, a social venture, and earn a doctorate at Harvard University. What, what? Um, where she also delved into the role of scale and strategic capital deployment and philanthropy in systems change initiatives. She's done a lot, right? So Angel's work with New Profit allows her to marry her research interests and practice. And she currently leads New Profit's $15 million Future of Work Global Fund to invest in entrepreneurs and companies developing innovative technical solutions to upskill low-income and entry-level workers at scale. And she recently launched a $6 million Future of Work Grand Challenge powered by XPRIZE and MIT Solve. Hello, hint to Boston where you're at. So to rapidly reskill 25,000 displaced workers into living wage jobs in the next 24 months. I'm excited to have you on. I need you to fill in the gaps because I glossed over so many of the amazing things you've you've done. Please take over, Dr. Angela Jackson. So I and thought welcome, you did fabulous. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. I feel like I want to just take you with me when I go on the road. Um, <laughs> the, the big thing, you know, everything I do is really centered on like economic mobility. You know, I'm really thinking a lot about how do you get folks who are living at the margins, you know, onto paths for upward mobility to earn, you know, living wages, better wages. Like, how do we close you know, the racial wealth gap. And so I invest in, in that lens. And I think the future of work is just really important for that. And so when we launched this future of work grand challenge initiative, it was to surface accelerated learning programs. So think, you know, tech boot camps, like how do you train people for the job of the future in less time with less dollars? And so those are platforms to do that. But on the other side, you know, I thought, I think, and we invest in this area called the social determinants of work. 
You know, what are the things that make work possible? And I remember a couple of years ago when I started talking about the social determinants of work, people were like, well, what is that? It's kind of like the social determinants of health, right? We know since the pandemic that like having access to childcare enables people to actually be able to work. And if you had to tell someone that a year ago, they'd be like, oh, that's kind of a nice to have. That's important. But now you see it's like knocking women out of the workforce who make six and seven figures, right? Because they need someone to be home with their child. And I always say, if it takes women out of the, the work field that's making six figures an hour, what about the people who are making $15 an hour? So we invest in entrepreneurs who are thinking about innovations, like how to make childcare more accessible, how to network, you know, independent child care providers, right, and give them a platform by which they have access to the open market. We're also thinking about innovations in transportation. You know, I recently looked at this deal of investing in a company, they call themselves like the Uber for non-medical transportation. You know, they're really centered on like, how do you get, how do people get to the doctor's appointments, you know, and many times people miss these appointments because they don't have transportation. So everything that I'm investing in is just really grounded on real people, who are living at the margins. And again, like how do we make this like a more equitable world and future of work? And it's really at the intersection of profit and purpose because I feel like you can do this without taking any concessions. A lot of times people think it has to be philanthropy, but that's not true. And we're seeing a lot of folks come out with business ideas now that they're looking at 2X, 3X returns and serving like a great need in society. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. I think that's amazing. And uh, we're going to dive in soon. But before we do, because we're the Whiskey Hill, we like to drink. We like to sip on whiskey and sometimes other uh, other spirits. So as our special guest, uh, we wanted to you know, have you introduce the, the, the drink of the day um, and tell us a little bit about, you know, the drink of the day that we're having today and uh, why you chose it. And just if you have a little background around it. Please share. Absolutely. So it's going to be the not whiskey drink of the day, right? And so <laughs> I am a professed lover of rum. And I was just telling the guys before I joined on here that in terms of rum, back in the day, I fell in love with rum punches. I went to Jamaica for the first time. And mm. Jamaica, many times they use Ray and Nephews is the rum that they use. It's a hundred overproof rum. It will absolutely knock you out. And when I got back to New York, I found out it was only like $15 a bottle. So it's 20-something-year-old me was, like, loving everything about Ray and Nephews. But now that I'm adulting, I still drink my rum punch, but I use Diplomatico. It's from it's from Venezuela, and it has a very smooth taste. So you can definitely mix it up with your, like, orange peach mango and make your rum punch, or you can put it on the rocks and just drink it kind of smooth and chill. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. And that's something that, you know, we're going to we're going to review at the end of the episode. We're going to sip on it. We're going to have Dr. Uh, Dr. Jackson really dive into it with us and and uh, inform our listeners around this new spirits that we're bringing to the whiskey hue. So (laughs) so what I want to do now is I want to I want to I want to start at the beginning. Tell us about your journey. uh, The very beginning, how you got started. What's your why? behind where you're at today. 
Yeah. So, you know, my very beginning, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I, I tell people I started my first lemonade stand when I was 10 years old and there were some construction workers at the end of the street and I had my stand out there and I was serving them a cup and I think it was like maybe 50 cents a cup. And the guy tells me, <laughs> I'll give you $20 if I can get unlimited lemonade for the rest of the afternoon. I was like, Oh, 20, you know, versus 50 cents. Um, it was the longest afternoon of my life. Those guys drank a ton of lemonade and that's my <laughs> learning about economics, right? Return on investment. I up my prices after that. But um, truly, you know, I, I've always worked. I was raised by my grandparents um, outside of Chicago. Uh, my grandfather worked at a local uh, Chrysler factory plant. And I like to say, you know, at that time, he was paid a living wage, right? Um, he didn't go on. He didn't have advanced education. He had to drop out of school um, in eighth grade. He grew up in the second grade at South. And so he always instilled in me um, the importance of one, education and two, just owning your own business. Um, despite those circumstances, he was able to go on and own property, et cetera. So I really valued like hard work. And I also value people who may not have chances in the traditional system by no fault of their own, right? And so yep. just because a system has failed you doesn't mean that you should be destined for a life of poverty. And so the through line in all of my work, you know, as I went on to advance, I started my career um, in marketing and communications, you know, working at the... Uh, um, entertainment studios in California, Sony and Universal, and then moved to New York and, and worked for Viacom. My through line was always thinking about how can we open up opportunities for people? And even for me, I was like working in jobs I couldn't have even dreamed of. And when mm -hmm. I'd go back to Chicago, I'd see classmates that were just like me, bright, full potential, um, but they didn't have the same opportunities. And so yeah. once I got a seat at the table, I was like, okay, who am I going to bring with me? And so mm -hmm. that started with me starting my own organization. As Athel mentioned, right, it's a global language project that enabled me to hire people from the community, to employ mm -hmm. people, to give them jobs, but also to help students and also just to earn a wage for myself, right? From going from the private sector to being an entrepreneur. Um, from there, I just thought about as being a woman and a woman entrepreneur, I didn't know that I was doing anything radical by starting Global Language Project. Like I didn't know the statistics then about like how women raise less money, how women of color less, you know, raise even less, right? And so once I found out that game, I was able to go on and raise about $10 million for that that venture. Once I found out how to do fundraising, I felt like it was like my gift. I did sales in my past life in the private sector. It translated to fundraising and I just thought it shouldn't be so hard. And so my like commitment after that experience was like paying it forward. You know, I had a lot of people who poured into me and helped me with my first raises. I thought, how can I take this information and democratize it? And so I thought I want to go on the other side and be an investor myself because it's literally disheartening to all always pitch to people who don't look like you, who don't have the back experience. And I, I found when I was doing my raises, if I had to explain to someone and begin teaching them why the issue was important, that meant that I was probably going to get a no, right? And so I thought more people on the back end, right, who have some shared experience or at least a level set. And so that's why I um, went back to get my doctorate and entered New Profit and started investing and just have been a proponent of investing in women, investing in founders of color. And, you know, what I, you know, the Arlen Hamilton would say underestimated founders. I feel like that's the growth opportunity in the markets. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. That gives us good context as we decide to, 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 to drive, to dive right in. So, 
for uh, for that. You know, what's new? Like, what are you what are you thinking about today? What's driving you? And what's uh, uh, what's what's a hot topic on your list today? Yeah, I've been thinking about lately. Um, you know, there's been this whole racial reckoning, and so there's a lot of new funds that are popping up. Um, I myself am raising a new fund. Um, we invest philanthropically at New Profit, but with this new fund called Inclusive Future um, Fund, we're going to invest in for-profit entrepreneurs are out there. So we're raising a small $20 million fund. And so what we will also do is invest in other fund managers of color who are out there. Mm-hmm. But one thing is when you do the fund economics, you know, when you think about a $20 million fund, you're really operating subscale. You know, I'm very fortunate that I have the backing of this platform of new profit, right? That takes care of my salary, that makes sure that I have the staff to actually run this fund. I think about all of these other new startup funds who are raising $5 million funds or even $20 million funds. Like it's hard to even pay yourself, right? And so very similar to what we're doing in, in founders where we're underinvesting in founders of color, I feel like there's an underinvestment of fund managers in color. And so I'm just wondering what the downstream implications of that will be. Um, will these people be able to afford to stay in to raise even fund two? Will some of them be counted out because they don't have the support they need to do the diligence, the research, et cetera? Mm. So those are things I'm thinking about in my mind right now. And assuming that you'll, oh, sorry, uh, you got something, Clyde? I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, when you think about investing, is there a specific sector or series round that you're targeting or you're across the board? Yeah, no, no, we're not. So we, in entrepreneurs, we invest in the pre-seed and seed stage. And okay. so, and we're really, you know, we invest in the future work, which we call an accelerated future work. So those are just accelerated learning programs that are done through technology and, and through distance. And then we have what we call this category, social determinants of work. So really thinking about health, transportation, childcare, and just really narrowly focused on those two. You, we talked about this last time, uh, Angela, you and I, when you were talking about like these traditional venture models and you alluded to it just a moment ago, right? Then you need, you, maybe you're, you know, 20, 30, 40 X sometimes to return, keep the LPs happy. So this, you get to operate in a unique manner, which is you don't have to satisfy though, get those ROIs to satisfy the LPs of sorts. When you're raising these funds, is it more grant based than the, the investors that are coming in and saying we we're expecting X versus 30X, give me that and then I'll bring you up with a side B to that question. Yeah, so we decided with this for-profit fund that we weren't going to accept concessions. So we're looking at market rates. So we're looking at a 3X or 4X return. We thought that that was really important to have that expectation so that we send the right signal to the market for these entrepreneurs. Um, What you will find out many times is if you have entrepreneurs that have too much philanthropic um, investment or LPs who are not expecting, you know, market returns, that that sends a signal to other investors that they're not investable. And so we really want to prove out this concept that you can work at that intersection of profit and purpose and without concessions and get that 3x return, which, you know, people say, you know, you want 30x. I think that's great. I think 3x is respectable, 3x, 4x. Like if you look at the market, that's a solid return on your investment. And how do you make it? So let's make it easier. So like, uh, let's call it venture VC, venture capital, VP, venture philanthropy. I like, I like that. How do we bridge these two? Because there should be more, there's a lot of gray area here and it needs to be filled, right? So how can you get, you and I chat about this before, 
slightly and then we are supposed to pick that conversation back up, which I'm, I'm happy that we're doing. And I want, how can we bridge that gap so then there can be more people that see this as an alternative or as another way to get help society and make profit yeah and i I think this is what's special about new profit when we think about it like in the real world an entrepreneur needs different um, types of capital at different phases right when they're raising you know sometimes entrepreneurs need that friends and family and that's where we come in and we can give them a grant right we're not expecting anything in return and we can help them grow if we see that they actually have an idea with market potential we can do an investment right and that's putting it more on the vc side so if you think of it as like a line, right? Continuum from purely philanthropic to VC, we can like slide on that scale back and forth depending mm-hmm. on the entrepreneur and meet them where they are and, and make sure that we're sending the right signal that's setting them up for success. Because I'm constantly mm-hmm. thinking about our check size average is around $250,000. And what I tell people, but that doesn't make an entrepreneur, right? So if mm-hmm. you write that check, they're going to need more money. And even me, I personally, Angel Invest, the largest check I wrote was around $50,000. That organization, that entrepreneur still struggled to raise. Now she finally, you know, they finally did go on to raise the one particular I'm thinking about, but it took them time to do that. And it was great that she had patient angel capital to do it. Um, but she, now that she's looking to raise her, her next round, I want to be there and be able to follow through with her. And so mm-hmm. that's the luxury it gives new profit. Um, so, you know, we launched this future work grant challenge where we we're giving away $5 million in grants. We had over 1200 entrepreneurs apply with their accelerated learning programs. And through several judging rounds, we narrowed it down to 15 that we gave them each a hundred thousand dollar grants just wow. to test their ideas, right. To get some background on it. And I remember some of my, VC friends were like, you're not getting anything in return for that. (laughs) And I was like, no, they're like, why not? You know, part of what we wanted to do with this grant dollars that we have was actually show the market, right, that there were these accelerated learning programs out there that could be centered on the people who actually need the training the most, people without a four-year degree. Typically, most accelerated learning programs that you see out there, they're really designed for people who have a four-year degree already. And so we wanted to think how these entrepreneurs think about this population. In doing that, we got a lot of existing players who are out there who applied. We narrowed it down to 15. And of those 15, what we're doing now, after we've given the $100,000 grants, we're setting them up to do the follow-on investments from the fund that we raised, right? So we're able to also see which ones perform. We're able to get to know the entrepreneurs intimately. We're able to see how many people they're able to serve in, in like real world, not them telling us we're actually selling, setting up 15 validations in six different cities. So from that, we got a lot of information on what's happening in the market for that philanthropic investment. That's going to help us make a more informed kind of equity investment on the back end later this year. I love this. May I jump in for two seconds? Yeah. I love what you're doing. We chat about this is awesome because because a what you're doing, you're actually building. You're you're taking the same. You're essentially taking a fund and splitting it in two, right? And, and go go down this lane with me for a second. So a you're 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 doing your proof, your use case, your proof proof of proof of case, right? Uh, with the first fund getting behind them, you're actually subsidizing. I think you mentioned last time or one of your read your writings was. You might pro- your group might provide some admin support, so they don't need to go out and hire that. That doesn't hit in their uh, their costs, right? So they, it, it's easier for them to deliver their product service. A B, then you get to see which ones perform, which you just said, and then that twenty million dollar fund is kind of like in a 
if a 40, $50 million typical fund, you park half of it to the side and then you put that into your winners, right? And, and it's kind of essentially what you're doing, which is, I love this model, but there's, it's less risk adjusted because it's a separate entity coming in, only dabbling with the winners where it didn't have any exposure to the ones that didn't hit that winning mark. I love that. That's a, that's a cool idea. Well, the reason I love it too is that we actually, it's given us a ton of insights, right? Like I shared with you, we had 1,200 teams apply, you know, submit their business plans, their pitches. We, you know, we're able to do a landscape analysis. These are the entrepreneurs who are creating the future of work, these programs. So it also provided us this heat map, right? Yeah. On where we should think about investing, you know, where yeah. the entrepreneurs are and then also what's the white space. And so we've had larger VCs and some even private equity companies approach us because they're interested in the data when they think about what are the companies, what are the areas that they should be watching. And so for us, it's proprietary. We're able to share it with our kind of aligned investors, which has been great. And we've got six of them that we work closely with. So we're able to learn and make investments. And, and you know, our, our hypothesis, and we'll see how it plays out, is it can, it's going to lead to better investments at the end of the day. Mm, love it. It's, that's a beautiful model, right? Love and then there's a, there's a huge space for this. Okay, so you're, you're doing seed and pre-seed. So those venture, like the just venture in general is going to be in that space. Series A and up is going to kind of remain intact. Series A might get eaten up a little bit, but you have these pipe and all these other kind of plays that are eating up that middle VC, kind of the space that we play in. So we're beyond seed and that. So then there's competitive like syndicates and all of that. So you're operating in a good safe space for now where it's needed. And then the big guys take care of the big stuff at the back end and then hand it off to the middle folks, which it's getting blurry right now as to who's performing the best in that blurry space. I love it. Yeah. Great. And we need more people in the middle space, right? Who are like really understanding like around equity. You know, like I said, even our 250 checks, you like, you know, these entrepreneurs need, need more access to capital. So the other thing that we've tried to do is like build those like downstream and upstream relationships so we can be the one that's actually helping to shepherd this entrepreneur, introducing them to other investors, but also more importantly for us, we're introducing them to actual customers. When I talk about those six pilots that we did with those entrepreneurs, those are pilot sites that said if the pilot's successful we'll become their customer mm-hmm. and so those are like year long multiple year contracts that will be worth much more than a $250,000 investment and that's coming out of the $15 million fund the yeah. 250 yeah. so that's a pretty large check you're writing right if you're doing seed and pre-seed usually they're you're four or five x what typically like it's usually 25 to 50 in those earlier stages you're going Bigger because you vetted them? Well, we vetted them. We know them intimately. Okay. We've watched them. Some of them, you know, I'll g- give you a couple examples. Like, you know, we were early friends and family and we made a $50,000 like investment, philanthropic investment with them. So we've watched them grow. We know what how their entrepreneurs think, right? And we've seen their decision making, how they've been able to build their brand. And so, again, we, we feel like we're de-risking that investment when we put them in front of our LPs and talk about the portfolio. What, the One of the things I wanted to, to just rewind a little when it comes down to the entrepreneurs is I don't want to get into the data that's proprietary, but what for, for our other half of the audience, what industries are you most interested in right now? Um, because I think that, you know, for our wide array of all, you know, people who listen, that's something that, you know, if they have a, if they're, if they're focused on entertainment or healthcare or whatever industry, you know, they want to, I want to make sure they have an idea like what's hot or what's, interesting to you and your group um, yeah. right now? 
So first and foremost is thinking about accelerated learning programs, right? So you know, there's a couple, two things that are at play here. One is like, it's estimated that the first person that will live to be 150 years old has already been born. So if you think of it that way, you know, already we're estimated to have 12 career changes. If you think someone who's coming out of you know, college right now, yeah. that's going to just multiply. So what will be important is for people to be able to change careers, understand how, you know, your skills in one sector translate to another and be able to change and shift jobs. And we saw that with the pandemic, right? You had people who worked in the travel and restaurant industries who you thought might be, you know, recession proof. They lost their jobs overnight. And many of those folks are not, they're not coming back. Right. And so like, how do you take those skills and do something new? So that's why you need accelerated learning programs, right? So someone who might've done hospitality in the past, they may not have time to go back and get a four year degree, right. Or go back for even a year to get a master's degree, but they may have 16 weeks and can they be able to learn something in 16 weeks that will transfer to a new sector that can earn them a living wage. That's what I'm hearing from job seekers and people they're in need of like right now. The other thing that I think about as it relates to learning in these accelerated learning programs is how are people paying for them? So thinking a lot about kind of fintech, how do you pay for learning? How do you pay for your school debt? You know, entrepreneurs who are thinking like being really creative about it. And so there's a couple entrepreneurs out there that allow um, their platforms, allow people to actually do on the site jobs for Fortune 500 companies to work against their, their college debt, for example. Mm. We think about or to earn money. And so just thinking about entrepreneurs who are thinking creatively, like how to keep people engaged in this kind of economy and new economy. No, I love it. I love that. I love that piece. And you touched on something a little bit earlier that kind of goes to that is around the pandemic and shifting the workforce. One of the things that stood out to me around the pandemic was, um, unfortunately, women were impacted uh, dramatically compared to everyone else. And one of our friends of the show um, talked about the Marshall Plan, uh, Reshma Sanjani. Um, she she um, talks about the Marshall Plan and, you know, compensation for, you know, women who are not working in, in, in a workplace. You know, as you think about your social entrepreneurship and the, the, the avenues that your companies are investing in, what what path are you taking to specifically think about ways to impact or grow or or or, or help you know women in the workforce as they you know the future of work? Because I think that the future of work will be driven by women. Absolutely. Um, I just want to double click on that two times. Um, it will be driven by women, but when you look at you know jobs that are gendered, that are women jobs, they, they pay less, right? When you think mm-hmm. about the biggest you know job that women are doing is caregiving, much of it's unpaid, and then the rest of it is very low paid. And so really thinking about how do we professionalize those jobs? How do we enable people who are in those jobs to earn more money? Those are things that we think about a lot. So there's a new company that I I am a huge fan of called Care Car. And what they do is they do non-medical transportation, but they take people who are formerly nurses aides or caregivers who want to be drivers and help people get to their appointments because those people, when you talk about the transferable skills, like they're all about care and aiding people and helping people, but they professionalize this job. They don't call them, you know, a, a driver. They call it like a patient helper, right? And they give them an exact title and really begin to communicate for people, how you can take those skills that you may have done as a nursing assistant or a nurse's aide or a caregiver and translate it again to this next profession that could be an on-ramp to other medical careers. So 
entrepreneurs who are thinking creatively about mm. that piece. Yeah. Um, also, you know, there's another platform that they're using in Long Beach where it's think Uber again, think the Uber platform where independent like home care workers, daycare providers can get on this platform and they can advertise their, their services to anyone in like the Long Beach area, right? Mm. That's democratizing care that's also giving women, right? And families and parents and your know, fathers more choice besides the $26,000 daycare that's down the street. I don't know if you all thought, I just, I watched this, uh, read this episode or article that blew my mind, the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been getting a lot of flack because he's been bringing his child to work with him, going Mm -hmm. to like, you know, mayor's meetings, mayor's events. But he said, look, you know, I make $116,000 a year. I can't, I can't afford, my wife and I can't afford $26,000 a year for daycare. And so if we think that's, you know, mayors of cities, we know that we know that women parents they just need more options yeah absolutely so thanks for sharing on that give us uh, angela give us an example of how this is if you if whatever you can share one or two companies this has worked with a use case where you've gotten involved boom gotten to the next stage another investment has helped them flourish is it too early to discuss that right now no it's, it's not too early so there's one company where i'm just like i'm just so obsessed with them for so many reasons it's called charger help and so what they do is they train people to be technicians for electric car charging stations. First of all, oh, I would talk about the future of work every day. I didn't even know that was a job, right? Whoa. Oh. Whoa, right? <laughs> didn't know it was a job. Didn't know it was a job that pays upwards of $175 an hour. Third, didn't know it was Hold a on. job. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Okay, I know you on, right? <laughs> Anthony's trying to apply right now. <laughs> we just back. lost the house. You want to be in the office? <laughs> I'll come in and guest host. You just let me know. There you no, go. They, they pay a hundred. This job earns up one hundred and seventy-five dollars an hour. So what these women have done, brilliant, you know, two black women, is they created a training program where you can train for this job in sixteen weeks to mm. become mm. Uh, to, to a tech for car charging stations. Because so what they figured out is most of the tech. Like the repair happens in the cloud. Basically, to be a technician, you're using your your iPhone or your iPad and you're punching in what you're seeing mm-hmm. at the station. And while they're training them, they're paying them a living wage, right? And benefits to do this job. And then it's a pathway up to $175 an hour. So you take these women. And like I said, I didn't know that existed. It does. It's a job. It's growing, especially with all the laws that are coming around climate change and also electric cars. What's been beautiful about them is that they applied for our Future of Work Grand Challenge. They launched in January of 2020, right? Right before the pandemic. Applied for our Future of Work Grand Challenge. Uh, we gave them $100,000. We paired them uh, with a workforce board and job centers in Massachusetts so they could start training people to do these jobs. And they just recently went on to raise their first round, right? And it's like a little bit under $3 million. And you think about that trajectory for two African-American women who were from Compton, California to do in a little more than a year during a pandemic, it's unheard of, but it's really the power one of the us spotting these unlikely undercounted um, founders who are like also surfacing opportunities in their community. They saw these car, uh, car charging stations popping up and they begin to investigate it. Right. And found out that they could build a business around it while doing a lot of good in their communities. This is the this is the perfect VP VC bridge we are talking about. So then they build it. So they upscale these folks 
And then it, the, the defensive mobility, the, the moat of defensibility then becomes some of the other product lines they want to offer, right? Uh, like, as you mentioned, there's sustainability issues and all of those things they can tackle. Now, what they've done, the reason I mentioned that bridge again is it's something new in the market, right? These stations weren't there 10 years ago and it's new in the market. They're equipping folks to get in. So they've got that first entry into the market of sorts and if they can own it for a while, how do you, how do we scale them? So then is there a point where, okay, so let's say the $20 million, the add-on fund, 15 million, sorry, the second one helps them scale even more. How can we get them in further? So then they can further develop that defensive moat and because there's going to be entrance now, you prove this business model, there's going to be people coming in hard. Yeah, well, a couple of things. One is they are really, they've got a model. They're, they're going to be growing. There's not a ton of competition. What they do in their point of differentiation is this workforce development piece and really taking people who wouldn't ordinarily know about these jobs, training them and giving them access. So that has a lot of credibility with their customers. Yeah. And so there's a large retailer who's also a partner of ours who was like, we have electric car charging stations in every one of our stores. You know, I'm going to connect them to our supplier and logistics department. That's where it becomes the sweet spot, right? Yeah. Because we know all of the people on the philanthropic side. We know the social responsibility people, but it's also at the intersection of their business interests. And so what Charger Help will let retailers and large organizations do is meet their kind of social goals while providing a service that's important for their business model. And that's, that's the sweet spot at the end of the day. And that's going to be their competitive advantage. So, so a round of applause to Charger Help. I think that yes, is amazing. Look them up. <laughs> look them yeah. up. Yeah, I look them up. Oh. I think that's amazing. And for our listeners who, you know, we try to stay savvy and, and, and introduce our listeners to up and coming uh, companies, whether it's, you know, uh, C, A, B, C, pre-series, whatever. So thank you for sharing that gym with us. Um, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the big things that, you know, I'm hearing from you is the future of work is changing, right? the introduction of the gig economy has essentially changed the way that work is being done. Um, as you think about, you know, 10 to 15 years from now, how do you see that evolving? And then how do you see um, you and, and the companies you're investing in driving that change? Yeah. So first of all, you know, I, I, I always laugh. I say, you know, I invest in the future of work, but like, Last year became the present of work. It's like everything that we thought would happen, <laughs> right, started happening, right? Like light speed, like things that we didn't think we could do via distance. You know, we're doing people who were against remote work, who swore by it. Well, guess what they had to do? And it actually kind of worked out, right? Yep. So you've got companies who are thinking about reducing their space. So what we're really thinking about now when I think about the future is, and it, you know, I, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I really think about what's going to be important is like, how do you engage more people? So if you look at, you know, Harvard Business School, they, Clay Christensen had this like kind of theory around non-consumers. And so these are people who like don't have a ton of options because they have limited income yeah. um, and that most entrepreneurs are missing. And I think the next spot is for entrepreneurs to begin thinking about what they might think are non-consumers and mm -hmm. thinking about who could be the folks who are paying for that. Because that's the missed opportunity there. Mm -hmm. um, we always go after people immediately as entrepreneurs. That's what you're taught in business school. Mm -hmm. Go after the people who can pay. I think as we think about broadening the pot, right, especially when you're broadening like income and quality, we got to kind of expand our definition of that and then be a bit more creative. And that's what we've tried to do. 
um, by getting these insights from the market, you know, working with that ecosystem play. Like I said, you know, finding the customers, finding the entrepreneurs, doing a bit of matchmaking is like the secret sauce that we'll get. And, you know, folks are starting to serve a lot of people. So that's that's going to be the future. I think the other thing that I think about is, you know, we talk about side hustles in the gig like that's not going anywhere, right? And so when we talk about transferable skills, it could be to get a, a you know another gig, another full time job, or it could be for a side hustle. So I think you're mm. going to find more and more people who want the flexibility, who want remote work, who might not want to be tied to one employer, who want a bit to explore a bit. And we're already seeing that research come from millennials right now, right? That they're like, I don't want to be tied to a company for 10 years. I want to do a few different things. And so I think for entrepreneurs, we need to think about how we meet those those interests. Amazing, amazing. And, we, and as we talk about entrepreneurs, I think about another initiative that, you know, you're, you're, you're leading in on is the proximate entrepreneurs, um, and the new profit commitment. Tell us a little bit about that and how, you know, that's driving change. So it, it started and I actually wrote a piece about this in, um, Stanford Social Innovation Review on proximate entrepreneurs and how, like, they have secret insights that other people may be missing. And, you know, one organization that we talk a lot about is uh, called Girl Trek. They've got over a million black women walking. You know, a lot of times, you know, companies would approach, you know, you think Weight Watchers, think diet programs. They would approach women's weight from you've got to lose weight. Right. And I think that's important for health, but also it's bigger than that. Like, what does it mean when you get women who are walking in their communities? And what has happened with Girl Truck is they've got over a million women walking. The women have lost weight, but they've also made changes in their community because that's what happens when women like go out, right? So if you see a pothole in the street, rather than driving by it, you walk past it, you can call 311 immediately. So it's helped to also improve communities. And I'd say something about Girl Trek that started as a social enterprise, right? That now has a million women walking. They're now being approached by brands like Peloton, right? And other, because they have so many women that it's actually now turning into a business, but again, working at that intersection. And I think more and more we're thinking about movements, like how do we get people, really customers deeply involved and attached to brands. And they're doing that because they were two women who struggled with their weight, who lived in their communities. And so they approached the problem from a very different way. And, you know, and they've got a, a many women, you know, they're, they're close to numbers when you think about Weight Watchers and some of them, but they're just doing it in a different way. And their product's a bit more sticky. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing on that. Um, before I dive into my next question, because I feel like I've been dominating guys, you guys are so quiet over there. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to speak when you uh, when you're engulfed in what uh, what Dr. Jackson is saying. Um, I, you know, it's, oh. it, it's it's the the your article. I did read the article. Um, it's a great article. Um, I, I like the idea of developing leaders itself from the community to, to solve issues. Right. And and I think that seems to be the major a major problem to, in today's in today's world. Like, yes, we, we, we have nonprofits that pop up all over the place. But how do we lead? off of experience is, is something that, you know, is near and dear. And, and, and I, I was engulfed into that article. <laughs> it was, it was a great article. Um, but one of the things, how, how do, how do people continue moving forward and becoming these proximate leaders and proximate entrepreneurs, et cetera, um, when they see an issue, how do they go forward in developing it and getting that awareness or who they reach out to, um, about this? 
Yeah. So they, they reach out to people like New Profit, right? So if you go to our website, we have, you know, a form that you can click in and you can share your idea, right? And we keep a, a list of entrepreneurs and we ask them, like, where are you get? How are you solving this problem? How do you know it's a problem? Right. And so if someone tells you I've lived the problem or I've got you know, five neighbors who are doing this, it costs me X amount of dollars. Like having that personal lived experience is one that is like a non-negotiable for us investing philanthropically or investing for equity. We want someone who's lived the problem that they're trying to solve. And so when you have an entrepreneur like that, you need to find the new profits of the world. You know, there are several, you know, incubators now that I, you know, I look to is leaders in the field. So even if you're thinking about like a K4 Capital, they have great grant funding. They also have equity. So, you know, we're not new at this. They've been doing it for a while. You also have Camelback Ventures, right? That just recently launched an equity fund because they're also understanding that these proximate entrepreneurs, they may not have access to capital. They may have that mm. business idea, but they may need the dollars to help start it, right? And not only the dollars, but the wraparound technical assistance. You know, we help our founders thinking about how do you set up your business? How do you approach your board? How do you decide if it's a 501c3 or if you want to do, you know, an LLC? These are important questions that, you know, we talk about day in and day out that other people just don't have access to. And, you know, Everyone goes, oh, you can go to the Internet. There's so much information. Sometimes there's almost too much information. Too much, yeah. <laughs> I tell people, like, in this world now, you, you actually need more mentorship and more navigation help, right? Mm-hmm. People save you time. You can go down a deep dive of the Internet and you can hear con- conflicting, like, different yeah. pieces of advice. So it's really important for us to think through how we can help people navigate the process. So I think, you know, folks like New Profit, like KPOR, you know, Camelback are just essential in helping people go from that idea stage to see if there's a there there. And I'm a I fan of Camelback Ventures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love how you brought that up because then it is so that the fund becomes the next fund, the next fund, the fund, and they all get attention. It brings attention to the scene, right? But that's all external capital coming into the scene. What the, And you went with the next iteration, which would be how do these communities invest themselves, right? So maybe they see these opportunities. Oh, we're getting this external capital. It allows us to boom, 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 upward mobility. Then Let's invest in our own selves. Let's set up our own. And you went exactly to the spot I was going to ask you, 503C, whatever it is, let's set up our own community investment platform of sorts, right? We can have someone run. I've seen that done in lower income communities. I've seen it right here in our backyard and it's, and it works, right? Long term, there's a play there and you can remain in your community and be successful. And I love that. That's exactly. So how can we set those up? Is there, is there a ground? Let's teach. The person walking by the pothole, we can fix that. Boom. Guess what? We can get the bat, the basketball courts can get nets that aren't chains that are broken. I've seen that where I was and, you know, I was just trying to go somewhere the other day and I saw that like, Oh, these kids deserve that. I get it. It's well, all weatherproof, but then if it's, it's broken, you can't get your basketball back unless you hit it with a stick. Right. So we got to fix these kind of things. So they'll get invested in their community. So how do we, is there essential, uh, is there a platform to maybe train the folks that are receiving and then, Hey, let's do it for ourselves as well. Yeah. So there's a couple, there's a couple of thoughts, I'll, a couple ways I'll answer that. First is, you know, when I started angel investing, just my person personally, you know, I wanted to demystify investing. People think that you have to be at a certain level to make investments. And so there's always this outlook of we've got to go ask others for money. And I think many of those investments, we have to start thinking about how do we invest in each other and entrepreneurs and people in our community. And, you know, there's vehicles for that. There's like community like funds and foundations 
in almost every major city or one that you can get to in, you know, in an hour. And so I'd encourage people to start there. Um, and they have tons of programs around entrepreneurship. The other thing is if you see a problem, right, and thinking about that is beginning to think about who in your network who can help you. And it's not about raising, I'd say, you know, 10,000 or 5,000. I remember the first investment I made was 500 and people mm-hmm. are like, Oh, it's just 500. But to that entrepreneur, what he needed to do at that level, that was the right amount that he had needed, yeah. right. To help get him to the next level. And so I just really encourage everyone to not think I have to wait for a VC investment. You know, some companies will be VC investable. Some of them won't, and they still will be great family sustaining businesses, right? And so we have to demystify this like sexiness of VC. Um, mm. I think it puts a lot of pressure on people and it stops ideas that yep. could have immediate value for communities. Amazing. I want to give you a round of applause because I think what you're doing is is great for our black and brown community. Um, you know, we here at the West Whiskey Hue, we're all about, you know, black and brown people. So, you know, I'm glad that we were able to have you on. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, we like to do is, you know, celebrate, celebrate our, our people who are making change in our community. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm going to pour myself some rum after this and celebrate myself. So before you do that, before you do that, what we like to do is one of the favorite parts of our show is called Shit You Should Know. <laughs> so, so basically, we like to share with our audience because it's a large, diverse audience group. And, you know, some are in finance, some are in marketing and, you know, some are not even in these type of professions. So we like to share what we're reading, what we're listening to what we're watching just giving someone some insight and information on what our world is existing in and um and just share it and i think i think our our listeners find it very valuable so we're gonna kick off shit you should know uh we'll let you go uh later so that you can you know uh take some time to think about it but uh i like to do the round table robin i'll pick Anthony, to go first. <laughs> uh, only go because first. you tell me. Only because you told me you were ready. Oh, did I tell you that? All right. So yeah, yep. yeah. So here's the thing. I I, I pick a fool's favorite company, Apple. Apple today yep. just uh, well, they had their earnings. Um, by the time our listeners hear this, is about going to be almost a week old. But they launched. They implemented the iOS 4.5. Here's the thing: is Apple versus Facebook now? But this 4.5, it's it's allowing. Facebook. Hold on. Jeez, come on. It's allowing, it's, it's asking all Apple device users for who, who have the 4.5 uh, operating system if they're going to allow, making apps ask the user if they can track their behavior. So opt-in. it's an opt in feature. And Facebook is, let's, let's, let's say, PO'd about that because their nature of their advertising platform is not around asking people to opt in. It's hyper-targeted. So there's now this battle between the two. It's something to pay attention to, something to watch, because uh, Apple's mantra for the past, what, three years, three to four years, yep. over, it overall has been about privacy, protecting of your data um, and protecting of your livelihood. And they're going headfirst into privacy and protection of data. Asul and I had had a conversation last week off air about people's about data and yep i'm gonna leave that part of the conversation off air <laughs> but uh this is something to pay attention to and i want people to pay attention we're going to keep on bringing updates on it uh, as it plays out because i think this war is going it's just starting 
And it's not just those two. It's Apple versus so Facebook, Google, all these cats that, you yeah. know, and we're, we're generally cool with people using our data, but health, you know, Apple and all these cats are trying to get into healthcare. Privacy is an issue, right? I'm it becomes an issue huge and issue. people start paying attention. So it's, I think it's going to be huge. So, well, I, I just do it. Do we think that people are okay with it or do we think that people don't know how to monetize their own data? Well, I, and so yeah. I'm very curious about organizations that are allowing yeah, people to do that. Well, I, I, I my, my thought process on it was. I think mm-hmm. I, I think when it comes down to their healthcare, they will to a point yeah. until what a yeah. company is offering is that great that much greater than what they already have, then they'll be fine with it. Um, it just seems like that's the case already. So I, I don't know, but it's something to pay attention to because I think this story is going to keep on going on, and you know, <clears throat> there it's not going to stop because this is a portion of business that we're really not taking, we're not tackling. Um, and corporations itself are going to tackle it on their own. Uh, but, but I have a second one mm-hmm. and it's just a, it's just a, since we talked about healthcare for all the men out here, especially black men, I want to make sure, you know, we are paying attention to our health after we came off of this pandemic for a year of people not going to the doctor mm. as much as they should have. Now it's time to make sure you're going, go and get your checkups, everything that you need to get done. Make sure it's happening. This is just a random thought. I had my physical the other day doing well, but I want to make sure all of the people out here who are listening to this, especially especially men, because men have a tendency not to go to the doctor until yeah, something is wrong. So but that's point. all I have. Great point. Great that point. That was a lot. You're taking up all the time. It sounds like very important about the health, though. I'll give you props for that. I'm just glad we get to point at somebody else. It's usually me taking up too much time from uh, Anthony's vantage point, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, I'll, I'll go quickly. Um, one thing that I'm reading right now, just kicked off, is the Trillion Dollar Coach, the leadership playbook of Silicon Valley's Bill Campbell. So he was pretty much the coach for a lot of the trillion dollar companies, Google, Apple, Intuit. He's the he's the guy behind the guys who, who who've driven you know these these great organizations. So I definitely recommend you check this book out. It's based on interviews from over like eighty people who knew Bill knew Bill Campbell and um, one that I definitely think if you're a fan of tech and Silicon Valley and the thinking behind leadership and the playbook and the rules is one that I definitely recommend you check out. Nice man. Angela, why don't you go? I don't want you. I don't want our guests going last. Okay, well there you go. You can have it. So um, there's a couple of them. Um, a book that I'm reading. I'm kind of late to the game on this, so the audience probably knows it. Um, but it's a uh, Peter Thiel, Zero to One. Mm-hmm. Boom. <laughs> it is. I just you know I never dug into it because I just don't like his politics. But then <laughs> I kept thinking right that it might be important to understand the mind of someone and just really see what are the things that I agree with and that I don't agree with. And so I found the book, there you go. I have found the book to be as excellent as people have told me. There's been areas that I don't quite disagree, uh, agree with, but, and I think it's also interesting if you read the book before to actually read it again, post pandemic, Mm -hmm. there are several things that he said in the book that have been proven not so true, right? Like he's a big fan of having everybody in the office, for example, right? I don't think the Peter Thiel pre pandemic would have said that people could all work remote and it would still be productive, right? It'd be interesting to go back and see what he thinks now, but that's a great book because not only that, him, but you know, I think the valley is full of people who think like him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I just thought that that was fascinating. As as you go out there as an entrepreneur, as you go out looking for you know LPs, just to understand folks' mindsets. The other one is I want to pick up on what Anthony mentioned Uh-oh. about Apple, but I'm thinking about the news with Apple and Spotify. I don't know mm. if you all. Heard 
Spotify yep. is launching its own podcast now, right? And, you know, I never thought about this, but I guess it happened so long ago. Apple actually created podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. So think about iPod. Um, so what will it mean to have another incumbent in the market, right, that charges less, that gives people more access to their data? Like what would that mean to, like, democratize how we can bring, like, our own whiskey brews to market? So I'm excited to see what happens there. All right. As, as usual, I got I have a list of 17. Um, all right. So Amazon. Amazon is set to overtake Walmart as the largest retailer by 2025. Just think about that. Let it marinate for a little bit. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit more lowbrow than all three of you classy individuals. You get you get brought great books. I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> Elon Musk going to host SNL May 8th. That's going to be funny. All right. Dogecoin. Is it though? Is it? Get on it, Clyde. Get on it, Clyde. Clyde's a Robin Hood champ over here. He's, he's victorious with his $3.50 he has invested in. <laughs> I was playing. I was playing. <laughs> he owns one seventeenth share of Amazon. I was playing. Um, <laughs> no. Um, no, so that's going to be funny. It's just going to be he's a cult. What, what other CEO could jo- jump in there? He'll be as glamorous. And Angela, you and I can. Michael Jordan's not a great actor. When he was on there, I'm like, damn, this dude cannot act. But you know what? He's a cult fault figure. So Elon's going to be the same dude. I don't think I think he's going to be kind of dry. We've seen him dance. It's, it's not good. Um, so it's going to be interesting when he gets in there. Um, but he's a he's a cult figure and he's fun to watch. I mean, it's going to be cool. Everything he says. I'm going to give a shout out to our friend who introduced you to us. Right. Uh, Julia Pimsler. Angela, she introduced you and I a couple months ago. I just spoke at her million dollar women's summit and she was gracious enough to send this whole big ass bottle of Hendrix. Right. It's as big as my whole house. Um, but that, I'm just very kind of her. And I, I'm you know, she's she's dope. And she's just she, everyone she introduces me to is just has just been amazing. Similar to you, just flawless. Um, I feel comfortable enough to say this, Angela. I want to oh you and I, our first conversation was sports oh and no. music. Right. A long time go. ago. Uh, a couple months ago, we talked about all these guys behind us. I'm not going to go there, Anthony. Don't worry, man. You, you can you can loosen up. <laughs> I've shared my affinity for R&B music. You and I talked about this, right? Um, I, that last time, I've known a Mrs. Jackson. I've known a Miss Jackson. I've known of a Janet Jackson. But I waited my whole life to say, "May I call you Angela?" Or Dr. Jackson, if I'm nasty. What? No, I'm My kids are like, who's Janet Jackson? Dad? I'm like, man, you'll find out someday. All right. <laughs> I like, did one better. My 14-year-old stepdaughter went to her first dance and they played Sorry, Miss Jackson. Her and her friends sent me like a little like eclipse and dance. Uh, They're like, this is your song. I'm like, 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Atlanta. I love it. Love it. Love it. 2021, right? <laughs> Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So what oh, we I got one more. I got uh, one more oh, classy thing. It's actually, going. No, it actually, going. this is actually, it ties right in with what Anthony was saying. This is where I was going, actually. This is what I meant to go. I want to, Shojin, uh, Ingrid, he works with our team. I want to just bring up some, a company she has. It actually helps track autoimmune diseases. And there's an app she's developed. It's out there and she's winning literally every prize out there. It's called Shojin's. It's Shogrins, S-J-O-G-R-E-N-S. Just type it in. You'll find it. It helps you. It's tailor tracking, customizable to you as a person, and you can track these autoimmune diseases. And it's just something that she put into market, and it's killing every competition. It's in the app store right now. It'll be on Android at some point, uh, but check it out. This is something that we need to do. We're coming out of this pandemic, as Anthony mentioned, look, there's a lot of things that weren't diagnosed last year that will need to get addressed, right? So let's get in there. That's it. Absolutely. Nice. Thanks. Thanks for that dissertation. Um, <laughs> so I, I, before we close out, I want to close out on our whiskey, uh, excuse me, our drink, a spirit of the day. Uh, we were sipping on uh, Domenico 
Uh, so, you know, Diplomatico. 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 There you go. Rum, you got rum crowd now. Yes. Rum crowd. Rum crowd. The rum so. hue. <laughs> so, uh, just wanted to highlight that for, you know, the Diplomatico. Diplomatico. There you go. There you go. Angela, Clyde, Clyde knows one name, and it's Clyde. <laughs> <laughs> All the rest of them, he just rolls. He just rolls. When Diplomatico becomes a sponsor, you'll have to send me a thank you, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You'll Cut the check. Many yes. A couple bottles. Uh, but yeah, it was our it was our, our our drink of the day, and thank you, Dr. Angela Jackson, for recommending it and uh, and sharing it with us. It's something that you know enjoyed. There was a little flavor uh, to it that for me that was a little cinnamon and uh, uh, spices to it. So uh, thank you for the introduction. Thank you. This is um, fun. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, I want to make sure our guests know that when drinking rum and in true island fashion, you make sure you you mix it with some some things. I don't know too many people drink it straight up unless you're unless you're unless you're at carnival and you're willing to Uh-oh. lose it all. Uh, but <laughs> until then, you mix it with a couple of things. It's a great rum. I know. If you just want an easy mix, Trader Joe's orange peach mango juice. Oh, there we go. go. Nice. Nice. Uh, <laughs> no, that's great. And Angela, I, we we have to follow up. I want to work with you. Like, I think there's some way we can vet companies. We've talked about this. We can help you vet companies. Um, I'll just come in. I just want to help vet okay. companies. Let's let's bridge that divide. Uh, there's a gap. We need to fill it. Let's get it out. Let's do it. Um, Absolutely. So thank you for this uh, episode of the Whiskey Hue. Our special guest, Dr. Angela Jackson. So many gems. You probably need to listen to this again to catch everything that was there. But uh, we want to thank you for listening. Check us out on all platforms and make sure you rate us. Thank you. Peace. Peace. Thank you.